So this evening, I would like to, to look at three different things which I see as uh, very connected. First, I would like to look at some symbols of awakening and what that might say about awakening in our practice. Then I want to look a little at love and then compassion, as I mentioned before. In Korea, when we do a ceremony, we offer three things, candle, incense, and water, because each of them actually is a symbol of awakening. And so that's what I would like to look at, what it means, why, why are they such a symbol. So candle, generally the candle is offered, it's lit, and in a way, what happens with a candle when it is lit? In a way, two things happen. One thing is that as a candle consumes itself, it gives us light. So it is a symbol of selflessness. That at is, as it spreads life, it disappears. And at the same time, it's a symbol of light, of course. And I think it shows us two things with awakening. That it is illuminating for everybody around us. And at the same time, the candle itself is illuminated. Like when there is no light in the candle, it's kind of quite gray. It's quite opaque. But if you lit it, suddenly it's nearly not transparent, but it's kind of lit from inside. And so in a way, the awakening has these two aspects. One of the fact that it brightens, it brightens us, but also it brightens us brightens us for others. So that the awakening is not just for ourselves, but is also something for others. The next thing that we offer is incense. And again, we lead the incense and two things happen. The first thing that happens is that as the incense consumes itself, it spreads its fragrance. So again, as it diminishes, as it disappears, it is giving off something to others. So again, a symbol of selflessness. And at the same time, what is interesting with the incense, with the, the scent, is that it goes everywhere. The incense does not say, oh, I don't like them over there. I am not going to go that way. But those, they really look good, so they'll get a little more. Not at all. The, the, the incense, the fragrance is pervasive. It goes everywhere without distinction. It's read out to everybody, to everything. And so again, I think to see in the awakening this feeling of vastness, of pervasiveness without, in a way, picking or choosing. And the third uh, symbol is water. And water, again, has two qualities. One quality of water is reflection. That if you have water, a surface of water, whatever comes above it will just be reflected as it is on the surface of the water. And again, the water is not going to say to the pretty one, oh, stay longer, stay longer, I want you longer. And he's not going to say, ooh, he's ugly. I am not going to reflect him or her. It just reflects, just as it is, what comes above it. 
And then when the thing passes, nothing is left. So again, the symbol of not grasping and not rejecting. And at the same time, the other quality of water is adaptability. That whatever container you put the water in, it will take that shape. Square, round, circle, oblong, etc. So it's very adaptable. And so that in a way, often we have this idea that awakening is this amazing experience which is going to happen to us. Boom! Kind of like something. When actually, I think it's more a process that happens to us. That in a way makes us more less self-centered and more open to others. That makes us a little more open in a vast way, more aware in a vast way. And also which makes us more flexible, more adaptable, as we seem to have this tendency to be very fixed, very solid. And this brings me to wanting to look a little at love as a quality which I think is very important to develop, to cultivate, to experience. And in a way, in, I would say in Buddhist circle, in spiritual circle, generally love has a bad press because you're supposed to not be attached. So I mean, if you love somebody, you're going to be attached. So this is a, not such a good thing. A little look down upon. And I read an article some years ago which I thought was wonderful about this lady telling us in a Buddhist magazine about all her Buddhist boyfriend who had been extremely uninvolved and non-attached but had not been much fan. But still, they wanted lots of sex, but that's another story. (laughs) And to me, I think we have to be very careful to, to see that when we talk about this non-grasping, this not rejecting, it doesn't mean that you're not aware, that you're not relating, that you're not connecting. But you do it in a non-grasping way, in a non-rejecting way. And I think this is very important to look. That love, to me, this is, uh, love is very important. But in a way, what we can develop is what I would call a creative, wise love. Because what is love? If we look at it, it is this opening, this care, this appreciation of ourselves, of others, of life, of the world. And love basically is about relating, is about connecting, is about meeting life, meeting the world, meeting others. And what I found interesting about love is to notice its texture. And I would say the texture of love is warmth. I know for myself, when I love snow, and I live in the south of France, and there is snow extremely rarely. But when there is snow, I see it, and I feel like I want to jump. I feel really kind of uplifted. I feel warm. In the same way that I have a niece, who is nine years old, and I love her very dearly. And so when I see her, when I think of her, again, there is this uplifting, this warmth, because I love her. And I was thinking, reflecting in that, 
I was thinking that if we could only love ourselves, we would be uplifted the whole time. <laughs> because we are with ourselves the whole time. But we seem to have a trouble. For some reason, we don't seem to love each other, to like ourselves. But then there is this problem because we are relatively self-centered. So we're rather focused on ourselves. And so we're focusing on this self which we're not very keen on. So it's kind of a little kind of self-defeating, isn't it? Well, if you loved yourself, it would be much easier. I think it would kind of, you know, there could be more creativity. There could be a kind of more healthy relating. So I think it's interesting to look at that. What is going on when we judge ourselves, when we dislike ourselves? What are we doing? We're actually, you know, it's happening. That warmth, that being uplifted, that relating to something in a creative, in a relating way. And that's what I noticed very much when my grandmother, who was quite old, she was 93, and toward uh, the end of her life, she was starting to, in a way, lose a function. And to me, what was interesting to notice was that until she, as long as she was okay, one of her greatest joy was for me to come back home after a long travel to open the door and to say, Grandma, I am here. And she would kind of beam. She would, ah, you're here. And it was like she would beam and she would be happy for the whole day. Because, you know, I'm a favorite granddaughter. So she was very happy to see me. And then, toward the last year of her life, I would come back from my travel and I would say, I am here. And she said, hmm, okay. (laughs) Because... There was something which was starting to weaken, to break in the brain and everything. But what was interesting was that when my niece brought a little miniature pet rabbit, my grandmother wanted to have the rabbit next to her the whole time. So we, she, she, she would sit next to the rabbit in the cage the whole time. He was there. And, and the niece brought it specially for her. And I thought, why is she doing that? Because I think this was the only thing she could still relate in a relatively conscious way which bring warmth to her heart because the relationship was became too, so vague that this was the only thing she could fix upon and relate to and it would bring her warmth and it would make her happy. And I think to me this is why I think love is so important because it cultivates that warmth, that being uplifted in the contact with others, with the world, with life. So what we have to be also careful about love, often we equate, I think, love with like, or with people who like us, or people we agree with. And to me, I've lived a long time in community. And living in community teaches you something that actually you don't need to like somebody, to necessarily care for them, appreciate them, be concerned for them. And so I think we have to kind of look, what is this love that we want to cultivate, that we want to develop? And it's just not a kind of a, kind of a love which like, 
which, because who are the people we like? Generally, first they have to like us. This is the first ingredient. And most of the time, they have to see the world in the same way. And then they're okay. Yes, we can go together in the same way. But, I mean, people look at things in such a different way. So I think it's to kind of see what is love. I think it's more than just a feeling of attraction. I think it's more, it's care, it's concern, it's relationship. And so in a way to see that there are so many ways we can love, so many ways we can relate to children, to family, to friends, to partner, to people we meet in the street. I mean, there are so many different ways to relate and to bring that warmth, to bring that care. And I think when we do that, actually it helps us to open. And also we are nurtured by the love. I mean, we give something and at the same time we receive something when we love someone, when we love something. So in a way to, and at the same time, we have to be careful that it's not just the love just of being loved. Because then we have this feeling of just existing in the eyes of others. And I think that's why it's so important that we love ourselves as much as we love others. This is very essential, that actually we exist in our own eyes. Our, we can define our existence just by our own awareness, our own relationship to ourselves, which also, of course, needs to be related to others, but don't, know, don't just reside in the eyes of others. So what is this creative love? And to me, I would say, creative love is a love which does not grasp, which does not limit. Because I think often we have this idea that if we love somebody, if we love something, then there is going to be this merger. I think often it's very exclusive. It's very kind of holding. It's very solidifying. But actually I see love more as this kind of, again, like the fragrance of the incense, something which can be quite pervasive, even if it's time to time connected to certain people, to certain things. And so I think what is interesting for us in terms of meditation to see, when is our love kind of limited, grasping, kind of holding? And when is love something which is really nurturing, not just to ourselves, but to others, because there is this pervasive, this vast, this open quality to it. And that's why I find, can often there is this idea in love that you need in order to really show that you love somebody. You must be jealous, you must be possessive, and then we have this idea of the crime of passion. I think this is crazy that people kind of don't get so much into trouble because it was a crime of passion. They were so in love that they you know, went and killed the person because they loved them so much. And come on, I mean, to me, this is not love. This is not love whatsoever. It's kind of a, kind of a grasping in a way, interest, grasping, attraction. Because what is interesting, see, when you love somebody, what is it that you love about them? Is it that you love the person, you really appreciate the person, or is it that you love the feeling that they create in you? And then you grasp at the feeling, and then you grasp at the person who gives you the feeling, and then you want the feeling to be there 
always in the same way. But that is not possible, and also I think that is not so healthy. So how can we love in such a way which then can, can be cultivated, can be developed, and is not so fixed, so limited? And I would say that in love, in that care, in that respect, in that appreciation, there is in a way also the gift of acceptance. To me, this is the greatest gift we can give to somebody. When you, when you say you love them, you're actually saying, I accept you. But generally, when we love somebody, what do we say? I love you, but... Or if only you change this, then really, really, I will love you. It's interesting, that kind of you know, limited love, you know, what I would call conditional love. But how do we feel when somebody says to us, I love you, but if you really change this, then you know, it would be so much better. Now, I think this is a great stress gift that we can totally accept the person as they are. And then from that, you can build trust. And then from that, you can discuss, of course, difficulty, problems. But you don't start from the condition. You start from the acceptance and then you try to work on the conditions and looking that you have conditions, they have conditions. Because I think what is very important in terms of love, especially when it's a partnership, when it's a couple, is that after the falling in love, which is wonderful and everything, what have we got? We have got two sets of habits cohabiting together. <laughs> this, I think, is very important. And so each person thinks their habits are the best. So because my habits are the best, then you have to have my habits. But, I mean, everybody thinks their habits are the best because it suits them. But it might not suit the other person. So in a way, to look. In a way, when there is love, when there is relating, what is it we bring to it? What are the assumptions we bring to it? How can meditative awareness helps us to have more stability, openness, and appreciation so that we can cultivate and develop love together. And also in terms of attachment, I think it's very important to see that actually when we love somebody, I, I, know, I don't know why in spiritual circle, I know there is you know, talk about you know, non-attachment and equanimity and things like this. But I think that if, I think love is important. And then when we love somebody, I think it's very important to see that we will influence each other. We will depend on each other. We will nurture each other. We will support each other. But can we support and influence each other in a creative way, in a constructive way? Or is it in a negative way. I think it's very much for us to see that if we live with someone, that it be a child, that it be a partner, that it be my grandmother, you always influence with the people you, you live with, you are with, because you share the space together. So of course there will be influence. But how can that be created? Also, how can that be, in a way, open-ended, instead of being fixed, instead of being closed? And so in a way, to look when we love someone, what is it 
How can we love creatively? How can we love wisely? How can we love in that, in a way, selfless way, in that open, in that pervasive way? Which leads me, in a way, to compassion. And personally, I feel that meditation is very much about the opening of the heart. And to me, when we, we, we start doing meditation retreat, sometimes we experience, and I, feel, I like that moment sometimes when we sit on meditation retreat and suddenly you are sitting there and you feel your heart open. And the way I could describe it is you suddenly have this feeling, I have no trouble with nobody. So anyway, there is no place where you can say, I don't like that. You just, your heart open to the whole of existence, to the whole of humanity. Again, with that pervasiveness, without distinction. And it feels amazing to experience that. Because generally we are so picky and choosy and kind of always this kind of, kind of discrimination. It's very heightened discrimination. And I think, to me, the meditation is very much about that. It's about, in a way, learning, developing, being stable, being open, so that we can see ourselves in a different way. We can see others in a different way. And so, of course, we say to be aware of your thought, of your feeling, of your body. But for me, it's also in being more aware in an open and stable manner of that, I also become more aware of the world around me. I become also more aware of others around me. I also become more aware in a kind of, you know, subtle way, a little of their thought. What is it that they think? What is it that they feel? What is it that they sense? And that we, in a way, open to the, to the life of others. To me, this is an important part of the meditation. So it's, although it seems to be a little kind of, you know, introverted, to me, actually, it's more the meditation to help us to gain the stability and openness to cultivate the awareness so that we really can open in a creative way to the, every life around us. And in, in that way, compassion is very much being aware. When you become aware of life, you become aware of the fragility of life. You become aware of the suffering of life. You also become aware of your connection to life through the breath, through the way you can survive, your life can survive. And I do feel that compassion is a natural, innate ability in each of us. It's just an innate response to suffering. And what is interesting to see that, you know, sometimes we have difficulty with people. They might be a little problematic or you have a little difficulty. And what is interesting is generally when they get ill, most of the time you don't say, great, you know, suffer, suffer, suffer. Mm -hmm. But generally you say, oh, poor them. Oh. And actually the fact that they're suffering helps you to go beyond what you disliked about them or what problem you had with them. And you can just but reach out to this person who is suffering. So I really feel we have that ability, actually, to go beyond our discrimination, to reach out to whatever suffering is around us. But in a way, 
At the same time, we need to be available to that suffering. To kind of say, yes, I'm ready to be with suffering. Yes, I want to be available to that suffering. Yes, I want to respond creatively, compassionately to that suffering. And, that, and at that level, that uh, compassion is not a, just a feeling. Because if I don't feel like it, well, forget it, you know. Suffer another day when I feel better about it. You know, but to, I think it's important to see, of course, it's an innate feeling, it's, but it's also a response. It's also this availability to life, to others, to the world. And in that, as I mentioned before, I think part of the compassion is this recognition of equality in life and in suffering. To see that we're all equal in life. We're all equal when we suffer. It's painful. We feel isolated. And so at that level, I think compassion is not just, in a way, a feeling. But I would say compassion is a practice. And it's a practice which helps us to open to others. A practice which helps us to go beyond ourselves. And this is very clear if you read the, the sutta, if you read the Buddhist text, the Buddha is going on again and again, again and again. I've just finished the numerical discourses, short discourses. And again and again, he talks about compassion as a practice. That for him, it's really an integral part of meditation practice. You have awareness practice, but also very important, you have compassion practice. Because the compassion is what helps us to go beyond our self-centeredness. Because in a way, that's what kind of, in a way, kind of fixes us, kind of holds us, limits us, this self-centeredness. And so if we have that intention to cultivate compassion, in a way, we have that intention to go out, to go beyond this self-centeredness. And for the Buddha, the compassion is very much, again and again, he will say, the compassion as an antidote to cruelty. And this is an interesting point to look at. It's kind of saying that when we have compassion, we have empathy for the experience of the person. Because often, what is it that can make us cruel, that can make us hard, is often when we abstract the person. We actually we relate more to the image of a person. But often, if you really have the person in front of you who is suffering, then actually you feel about them very differently. And I think that's why he talks again and again about compassion being an antidote to cruelty, because compassion asks you to be relating to the person who is suffering now. Not some abstract, imaginary monster somewhere, but the person now. And in that moment, you can but have compassion. But also what is important to see that the fact that we have compassion doesn't mean that we condone the action of the person. So you can feel compassion for somebody who might, not, might have committed cruel act or kind of unskillful action. So you can have compassion for the human being, but you do not condone the action. And that's what Stephen did for many years. He was actually the Buddhist chaplain in the prison, I don't know if you noticed, in Denbury there is a, a prison. And Stephen was a Buddhist chaplain there for more than 10 years. 
And he used to go once a week and to meet all kinds of prisoners. Some were murderers, some were sexual offenders, and all kinds of different people. And he had compassion for the human being, the, the tortured uh, human being who was suffering, who had difficulty. And at the same time, of course, he did not condone their action. He was trying with them to understand how come they were led to that, and how can they cultivate condition so they don't you know, have these impulses, have this impulsive action. So at that level, it's very important to have wisdom and compassion. And I would say this is a path of meditation, the wisdom and the compassion together. And also to see that there is, again, these two aspects of cultivation and effect. That actually sometimes just doing the meditation, the awareness meditation, or whatever meditation we do, will help us to just naturally become more compassionate. And that all the time we'll have to cultivate compassion intentionally and that will make us more compassionate. So I think again to see there are these two aspects. The cultivation of it and then the effect of that cultivation. And so in a way the meditation is not a part away from the world. But actually the meditation is to help us to respond creatively, compassionately to the world. And then that's where there is this very interesting kind of uh, debate in uh, Buddhism. And this is, should we have compassion after awakening or should we have compassion before awakening? It might not worry you very much, but I know in Korea it's a big debate. And I remember when I went to do, I was doing some research on some woman's book and I went to Korea and I went to this old, very respected nun, and she was head of the whole nun association, and she had practiced for many years. I mean, she was a real nun. And so I go to her and said, you know, what about compassion? And she said, compassion? Forget it. Until you awaken, don't worry about it. That's one view. <laughs> Why not? I mean, which is in an absolute way, of course. You know, if you really awaken, then you have the best, most creative, wise compassion. But I met another nun, which was interesting. What she was doing, it was that she created out of nothing these old women's home for old women without family and also old nuns who did not have disciples to take care of them. And so I asked her, but how come you did that? And she said, oh... You know, first, you know, I wanted to, to, to meditate and practice really hard and get awakened to save everybody. And then as I was meditating, I thought, you know, if they have to wait for me to awaken, they might have to wait a long time. So she said, maybe I can practice to awaken and at the same time I can have compassion for people in an active manner. We might choose to go that way. And at the same time, I think we also have to look how can we sometimes have what I would call misguided compassion. Because I think, you know, of course, compassion is a natural feeling, but I think it's very important for us in terms of the meditation to see what is a creative wise compassion in what is what I would call misguided compassion. We sometimes don't have the best result. I mean, sometimes you have what I would call self-serving compassion. 
kind of interested compassion. That you kind of, in a way, you are compassionate, but more for your own sake. And I experienced this very early on when I was in Korea. And in Korea, you have to share food when you eat. You can't eat on your own. This is extremely egoistic, and you don't do that there. It's a communal culture. So I was very hungry traveling as a Buddhist nun, and I was wanting to eat something. And I had some kind of uh, nuts. And I thought, I can't eat them by myself, especially a Buddhist nun. You know, that's really bad for. So I kind of looked for somebody I could share my nuts with, and then I could eat them. And so I look around, and then I found, you know, a great victim, uh, a young boy of about four years old. So I kind of say to the mom, can I give him the nuts? And the mom could, could not reason. You know, she could not say no. I was a Buddhist nut, so gave the nuts. And within two minutes, he had nuts everywhere, and it was a, a mess. And that's where I realized, you know, I give it to him out of compassion, but it's really for myself, and it has a, a negative effect. So, in a way, to see when we're compassionate, is it for ourselves, or is it really for others? Otherwise, you have what I would call ideological compassion. So you kind of, you know. You know what's right and you know what's good for people and you're going to tell them because they need it, you know. And uh, that, I think, is one has to be very careful. But I think ideological compassion has done a lot, caused a lot of suffering over the centuries. And my experience with, with it was when I was um, actually helping out with uh, visiting uh, the mother of a friend of mine in a nursing home, again, in Denbury. Because my friend had lots of difficulties, so I said, what can I do? And she said, oh, you could visit my mother once a week. I said, sure, I'll do that. And I thought, great. You know, she's old, she's going to die, we can talk about suffering, and we can talk of impermanence. Yeah, you know. Here we go, ideological compassion to the rescue. And so off I go, and I get there. And she, most of the time she was okay, but time to time she had hallucination. So she would suddenly see this huge insect and she would say, look! And I mean, there was nothing. And then my task after that became actually something which is very uh, un-Buddhist, distraction. (laughs) That was my main aim with her, was to distract her. As soon as I could see she started to see things, I would distract her. So in a way, but I had to know how can I distract her in a creative, positive way? So I had to talk to her and see what she liked. And she liked jam and roses and cricket and, and peace work. So when I started to see her getting extra, I said, what about that cricket match? And then, whoops, <laughs> off from the present and into some kind of you know, wonderful past. And so in a way, to me, this is an important element of compassion. And I think that's what meditation can really help there, is the art of listening, the art of being aware of the other. What is it that they need? What is it that they want? Not what I think they need, or what I think they should want, but what is it really that they need? What is it really that they want? And in a way, can I give it to them? I mean, this is the other question. Another thing that you can have is what I would call barter, commercial compassion. So you give a little something and you expect a big something in return. 
you know, and to kind of look at that, our expectation, kind of, you know, I give this, but I'm going to get this back. My teacher, Master Kuzan, used to say, when you give something, however precious, whatever it is, you should give it like you would give a dirty mop. You give somebody a dirty mop, you're really not going to expect anything from them. You'll be just happy they take it, actually. (laughs) And he said, you should give in the same way, just freely, totally open, without expecting something in return. Because I think the other thing we have is what I would call expecting compassion. So you will be compassionate towards somebody, you will give them something, or you will help them, whatever it is. And the first thing that you will expect is thank you. Because, I mean, if they don't thank you, then, I mean, really. (laughs) At least they should say thank you. It's interesting because I know people who are very kind, very giving. But if you don't say thank you, they're like, well, come on, you know, I gave this. And they did not even say thank you. But again, I think if we give, if we help, it's really open-ended. We really give. And we don't expect anything, not even thank you in return. And the second thing we expect is that if we help someone, at least they're going to change. Because, I mean, all this effort, you know, and, I mean, if they don't change, what's the point? I mean, I think we have to look at that when we help people, when we kind of, you know, you have often that expectation that they change. And personally, I really learned that, that often the person, they don't want to change or they don't want to change as fast as you think they should change. But what they want, actually, is that you just accept them as they are and that you are just there for them. And I have a, I have a few friends, that's what I do. I don't suggest anything. Because I've noticed whatever I suggest won't work or they won't do it. So what's the point? And the only thing is for me to be there, for me to love them, for me to care for them, for me to listen to them. In a way, they just want me to be there for them. That's all they need. And I think in a way, we have to be there. To me, this is also compassion. It's just actually being there. When often you cannot do anything. And we want to do something. We want to change. We want to improve. I think there is this tendency. And sometimes we can, and sometimes you cannot. And I think this requires great wise compassion to just be there for the person where they are at. And then there is what I would call discriminating compassion. So this is like when we... We're compassionate to fluffy rabbits if they don't eat our carrots or to children if they don't kind of shout and are not too tricky or to people who are nice and friendly and clean. You know, but if they're difficult, I don't know about that. This is interesting, but in a way this is easy. Being compassionate to nice people, I mean, it's easy. And generally, I mean... Sometimes they suffer too, but sometimes the people who are difficult are the ones who are really suffering. And to me, this is something I would really like you to consider. That sometimes, you know, people who are difficult, they they want to meet us maybe once a week, they want to talk to us once a week on the phone. 
And you might think, but oh, this is too much, they're so difficult. But think, they are with themselves 24 hours a day. <laughs> you are only with them an hour once a week. I think this is very important to consider. Because we have a tendency to make, oh, this phone call, just in a way, how can we be compassionate in a stable and open way? When in a way we are not colored, we are not overwhelmed by whatever comes from the person or the situation. And to me, that's why the meditation is so important with compassion, that it helps us to be stable and open so that we can be with difficult situations, we can be with suffering, but we're not going to be overwhelmed by it. And also at this level, in terms of compassion, to see this is a spectrum of sometimes you, you can be compassionate fully for others, sometimes it's compassion to yourself and others equally, and sometimes you can only have compassion for yourself. I think it's very important. The Buddha was very clear. It's not just compassion for others. It's a spectrum and it's according to condition. If you are very ill yourself, you will be very limited in being compassionate to others. So again, it very much depends on your situation, on your conditions. And also, I think what is important to look at is obstacle. What are the obstacles in my life to me being compassionate? And I would say there are actually two main obstacles. And one of them, I think, is very much from modern life. And it's busyness. It's very interesting. Notice with suddenly you think, I am busy. I have this to do, that to do. And then you get this tunnel vision. And then you have somebody who might be kind of, kind of really in pain. You say, too bad, too bad. Not now, not now, you know. Maybe in two days' time, but not now. I have this to do. I think it's very important to look at that. What is it that suddenly cuts us off from others? And I think that busy mind, really do that. We get into this tunnel. I must do this. And we really get caught. So in a way to be careful with this busy mind. And the other one, the other thing which is an obstacle, I think, to compassion is fear. When we're afraid, we really tighten. We really, in a way, become kind of afraid of everything. And, and, and so we kind of, everything is going to attack us. So we kind of like that. And then we, we can't open. We can be there for anybody because, again, there is an exaggeration a little, that proliferation. Everything is bad out there. Everybody, everything is going to get me. And then there is no place for opening our heart to others. So we need to see how do, if we are afraid for good reason, this is different. But how can I, in a way, cultivate? I think this is part of the path. How can I cultivate fearlessness? So then I can have, in a way, more compassion for myself and for others. And to finish with, I'll just, in a way, give uh, three small examples of what I would call uh, Buddhist compassion. The first one is a nun I met long ago in Thailand when I was doing that research. And I still have that image of that nun. 
She was a young nun, and she was, as in Thailand, they are all in white, and she was beautiful, and she was kind of like, you had the feeling she was gliding. She was like the perfect image of the nun, just gliding over the earth. I mean, she was amazing. And I went to see her because uh, she was quite interesting. She, was, she had built a temple for meditation, but also for unmarried mothers, and she was also having uh, developed a kindergarten for uh, and, uh, disabled children. And then, I mean, the best one, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to meet her, is that she also took care of Thai boxes. And Thai boxes are fairly, I mean, it's one of the most violent boxing you can have. They use anything to, to beat each other. And so I kind of looked at her and I thought, but Thai boxes. And she said, but they too have a spiritual life. They too, kind of, you know, we should be compassionate toward them. And I was very impressed to me because, in a way, this is not generally what uh, Thai nuns do. But again, she was creative in the way she would kind of go and see what is it I can do? How can I open my heart? Another person which I'm really personally very touched by is a friend of mine. And he's, uh, I presume you could call him, uh, he's into finance. This is his thing. He's into finance and he's very good at it. And he does things with mortgages and whatever. It's a little obscure for me. And, but what is interesting with him is that he works very hard. He gets up very early in the morning because of the markets and this and that and another. And also he has a, for a, somebody who is in finance and earns a lot of money, he has a small house. By American standard, he has a very small house. Just, you know, two bedroom, two bathroom, very small, minuscule garden, and this is it. No swimming pool, no anything fancy. And when he, his people from his office who are lower in the hierarchy come and said, but why do you live in this small house, you know? <laughs> This is not, you should show your status. You should kind of, you know. And he said, but that's all I need. I don't need 10 rooms. I don't need two swimming pools. Because what he does is that he kind of, uh, the money he earns, the one he thinks is on top of what he needs, then he gives it to charity. So anyway, this is his compassionate action. He has a skill, and then with that, he creates a surplus. And this surplus, he uses it for compassionate activity. Or if I think of another friend of mine who I'm so admirative of her because she's relatively poor. She has a quite a precarious existence. But she's the only person in the family who is willing to take care of her mother and her brother who is disabled. And so now that the mother is not so good, and the brother either, then in a way at the moment she could still work and go to see them. And What really helps her is when she is in the present. Sometimes she has this amazing moment of being just present with her mother. You know, sometimes she gets caught in how it is difficult. And then 
Suddenly, she said, I come back to just being with my mother, who is smiling in that moment, and we okay sitting on this bench and just present to the moment. And so in a way, there are so many different ways to be compassionate in a creative, wise way. And so that's what I would encourage you in a way to, to cultivate the meditation so that it can help that creative, wise compassion. So that's what I wanted to say today. Any questions or comments? Yes. Uh, this compassion is something you have to be careful with. And I think there are people that use it. You know, they take and take and that's it. Well, but you see, this is why I talk of creative wise compassion. You know? And, and personally, I think it's important to, to see what is my limit. Because you see, generally what we see, we, we, we either we think of compassion as this heroic thing. You know, I go beyond everything, and I'm heroic. And we have this very grandiose idea about compassion, which personally I think, you know, first be compassionate to yourself, to your neighbor, and things like this, to keep it really small, simple. And the next idea we have of compassion is that then I'm going to be taken advantage of. This is an interesting one, you know. And personally, I think, be wise. Be wise. You see, you... you, you it's very much, what is your limit? I think each of us has to accept that we have limits. And I think there is wisdom in that. What is my limit? Uh, what can I do here? Can I do anything? Sometimes we cannot do anything. And sometimes people ask us something and we give it, and then we might do it again and do it again. And then it's for you to see but you see what? Personally, I think we should question the taking advantage of. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. But when you do it, just do it. You see, and then to see wisely what is the effect on myself and others. So in a way, to look at the whole thing, to kind of see if, if, you, if you feel you take an advantage of, then you have to really look. What is going on? What is it they're expecting? What is it I am expecting? What is the, the mismatch between the two? How can I set limits? And, and to kind of try to engage with the situation creatively. To me, this is very important. And to see what is it I can do? And what is it I am not ready to do? I think, and to in a way... Yet to go beyond that idea of being taken advantage, but to keep wisdom, to keep wisdom. You know, I mean, if, you know, if somebody comes and says, you know, give me kind of uh, all your money, then you might be careful and say, well, I can give you 10 pounds, but not all my money. I mean, you know, again, one has to kind of play with it, experiment with it. Yes? And to me, an important uh, 
aspect of that is just um, a sheer sense of, of joy in the existence of, of other people. Mm-hmm. Is that something that meditation, is that something that meditation will, will develop? I would say so. In, in terms of... Um I mean, again, I think, you know, people have different tendency and condition and things like this, but I would say generally meditation helps you to see the human being. To see the human being is just like, our, like yourself. They're breathing like yourself. They want to be happy like yourself. And so to see, I think we can, the love comes and the compassion comes from the equality. You see that we are very much, I mean, we different in the condition, but very similar in certain way. And so in a way, you rejoice in being alive. You rejoice in them being alive. I mean, if they start to hit you, you might not rejoice so much. So I think, again, there needs to be some wisdom there. So in a way, yes, I would say there is, but it's more kind of that opening of the heart where you don't grasp at the dis- so much at the distinctive feature. Because often we like somebody because... They're like this, they're like that, they give me this, they give me that. And I think you're talking of just being, appreciating that they're alive at all. But within that also appreciating that we are alive at all. And I would say yes, generally meditation makes us more aware of being alive. Uh, Yes? Well, it's, it's uh, in a way, uh, it's, dis- it's kind of different aspect. Because I would say love is more that kind of texture of warmth, of, you know, being uplifted, a little that joy that was talked about, kind of loving something, relating to something in a kind of a light way, in a kind of loving way. And compassion, I mean, that is in Buddhism generally, is kind of, more the relation to the suffering. So, so loving kindness, I'll talk more about this tomorrow, is about wishing well, wishing for happiness. And then in a way, the compassion is wanting to relieve the suffering, to be with the suffering of the world. So it's just a, a kind of a little different direction. And again, it's different quality that we can have, because <coughs> you also have rejoicing. You have also the rejoicing in the happiness of others. So that's why I think it's just different facet. I would say different feeling, emotional facet that we can cultivate. And it's kind of, again, according to different conditions. Yes? Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I don't want to be too anal- anal- analytical here, but possibly. I mean, I have not thought about it. Tu me prends un peu de cours. You take me a little. Uh, generosity, when we generous. I think this is, uh, I would say, you see, for me, generosity would be another quality to cultivate. Again, because generosity is this kind of like 
giving space, giving kind of like, again, it's a little different something. The, in, in the loving, there is a wishing well. In the compassion, there is a suffering. And in generosity, there is this kind of a more open mind, a more generous mind, a more kind of a mind which, is, which feels rich in a way. You feel kind of ready to share. It's not only sharing something, but it's also for me more uh, with generosity is actually giving time and space to the person. To so, so I would see generosity in that way. So I think it's kind of, again, another aspect to cultivate, another quality to cultivate. But I think in a way all this quality meets insofar that we could call them skillful quality, positive quality, constructive quality. Yes? I would say two things. It's a good point. The two things is to be careful not to be, again, what I would call this proliferation. That generally if we think of the suffering and we start to think of the suffering of the world, then you think overwhelmed because nobody can resolve the suffering, all the suffering of the world. The only thing that we can have compassion with and creative, wise response to is the suffering in a way in front of us, the suffering that we know, the suffering that we meet, the suffering we can relate to. So I think we have to be very careful to, to kind of this feeling that ah, there is too much suffering in the world. Because at the same time, yes, there is suffering in the world, but there is also lots of good things, beautiful things in the world. It's not just suffering. So I think we have to be careful of that, what I would call over kind of proliferation with the whole suffering of the world. And the second thing to be really careful about in terms of compassion and being overwhelmed is to be careful that the meeting the suffering does not get linked into the poor me syndrome. Poor, poor them, poor them, poor me, poor me. That, you know, oh, life is terrible, life is awful, and off we go. This we have to be very careful because when we meet suffering, it is not easy. I think we have to see that compassion actually is not necessarily easy. It might also feel, make us feel uncomfortable. It might make us feel a bit low. It might make us feel sad. I think we have to be aware of that. And I think that's why we need stability and openness. So we have to be careful that that feeling of sadness, of a little low, low down, doesn't go into the poor me loop. This is, I think, very important. Because, for example, I was, um, three years ago, I was in South Africa, and we generally, because we go regularly to this place where there is Zulu villages and there is lots of poverty, we generally try to help financially the school and things like that, often, etc. And then somebody said, oh, why don't you go and see this family? Meaning, once you see them, you'll do something for them, and they're very destitute, so... We said, okay, we go to see this family. So we go to this hut in the village, and I have never been in such, at that moment, in so, so sad a place. 
There was nothing in the hut. It was really bare. There was two little girls, I mean, two little children, which were not sure about the sex, and the gender, full of scabies, ragged clothes. There was this old woman who looked like their grandmother, who looked so depressed. And I was sitting there, and I felt depressed myself. I was sat, sat there, and I thought, you know, this is really, because, you know, the, the mother had run off of the girl, the father had died, they had nothing, and they were begging in the village, which was already really poor. And I was sitting there, actually I did what I suggested one should not do, and this was, this is one family, and there must be so many other families in the world like this, who are so, who have no means of survival. And I felt extremely sad. And so, of course, uh, we gave them money, etc., etc. But I was kind of quite sad. I could feel in myself for a week, for a week, just having been in that hut, for a week, I felt sad. But it did not stop me from teaching, from meeting people. I mean, I just, it was due to those conditions to have met that. I was sad. And it was, but I could contain, in a way, the sadness because of the stability, because of the meditation. And then uh, everything changed, of course, because we gave them money. And then the old grandmother was actually only 55. Now she looks much better. The children, too, go to school, etc. So for that family, it is much better. So I feel joyful for them. And at the same time, I feel sad because I know other people are like that and I cannot help them. So I think that's the thing. Generally, suffering will lead to us feeling sad. I think this is unavoidable, and this is a normal feeling. But again, the meditation can help us with the stability. And that's where, in a way, it comes in with the equanimity, to kind of cultivate stability and a certain equanimity so we don't grasp, we don't proliferate, we just stay, and we just contain that feeling. That, I think, is important. And... I have to, last one there. You said that busyness is, is an obstacle to happiness. Do you think it makes compassion impossible, or is there a kind of mindful busyness where you should be busy but still? No, I think efficiency. You see, we have two different things here. I think you can be efficient and be compassionate. What I'm talking is a kind of a state of mind, which when we get into it, Actually, we become, I would say, funny. It's a state of mind where, for some reason, we get into the state. It's kind of a little, I would say, a febrile state of mind. A little kind of, <gasps> you see, we can do this, that, and be, you know, have what I would call a busy life. But this is different than suddenly getting into this state of mind where, <gasps> I am busy. I have this to do, that to do. And we get this tunnel vision. So to me, this would, if you get a tunnel vision, which is like really fixed, then you're not going to see anything else. But yes, you can be busy in what I would call a compassionate, creative, efficient way, where you do things and it works. It's interesting, when you're busy and it's kind of like that, then things start to fall apart. You can notice things kind of falls and this kind of, well, if you are busy in what I would call a stable and open manner, 
that if something unexpected happens, you can respond to it. To me, this is a difference. And the way to know it is when we seem to get into this tunnel vision, when you, you, you think your life depends in just that. That's what I find interesting. Because suddenly our life is reduced to that. And we don't see anything else. But otherwise, yes, I think we can. Not busyness per se, but I would say a certain type of busyness. Good, I think we have uh, to stop here. And now there is a walking meditation, (laughs) possibly in the rain. I hope that the people in the tent are not wet and relatively comfortable. I'm a little worried about them, but maybe if they have any difficulty, they can let us know or let the manager no wait possibly it's a little better now so and we meet again at uh, quarter to nine thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.